While the rapid global spread of the coronavirus has created a huge amount of uncertainty and pain, one thing is clear. We are living in unprecedented times, certainly unprecedented in our lifetimes. Stock prices have fallen quickly and steeply, and the volatility seems likely to continue for weeks or even longer. Businesses, jobs, and supply chains around the globe are being disrupted. People's everyday lives are being disrupted as well, from schools to work to travel. In response, the Federal Reserve has lowered interest rates to nearly zero to help the economy and calm financial markets. The administration declared a national state of emergency, and over $1 trillion of stimulus has been announced in various forms. So how can and should people respond? What steps, if any, can they take from here in their financial lives? Hello, and welcome to this market edition of the Merrill Perspectives podcast. I'm Candace Browning, head of B of A Global Research. However history ultimately views the effects on our lives caused by the coronavirus, 2020 will be a year to remember. So what does all of this mean? Are there practical steps people should consider taking while continuing to focus on their long-term goals? Joining me today to share their insights are Chris Heisey, Chief Investment Officer for Merrill and Bank of America Private Bank. Hi, Candice. And Jared Woodard, Head of the Research Investment Committee and Director for Global Investment Strategy for B of A Global Research. Hello, Candice. Chris and Jared, let's start with the markets. What's your perspective on what actually happened over the last few weeks? And how has it changed your outlook for things like economic growth and earnings? Yeah, Candace, if you think about it, you've got a health crisis, a financial crisis that has unfolded, and then potentially an economic crisis that could occur over the course of the next few months, perhaps longer. Those three areas have very different timing elements to them and very different magnitudes and also elements of unknown. For instance, the health side of the equation is still very unknown. Now, the financial and economic side of the equation is taking cue from the health. And this is where it gets very difficult to assess the overall level of growth, not to mention where corporate profits ultimately bottom out at. And then you have a reaction function to all of that as it relates to volatility in the financial markets. So putting all that together, this perspective has changed significantly in the past few weeks. It went from how do we contain a virus that's unknown and how do we support the financial markets to now how do we not only contain the virus, how do we actually create a greater cushion for the economy and something that lasts coming out of this. Chris, you make a very good point, which is that the heart of this problem is a healthcare crisis. And in order to solve the financial crisis and economic crisis, you need to solve the healthcare crisis. So, Jared, what are some of your thoughts? Well, one way this has been unprecedented is the speed with which this health crisis has spread around the world and it has started to become an economic and a financial problem. You you had what was a supply shock first and foremost of, you know, manufactured goods and so on and global trade being disrupted becoming quickly a demand shock in which workers and consumers having to stay home means there's no supply of labor but there's also no demand, you know, on the consumer side and that has turned in, into a problem for businesses. As a result, these completely unrelated 
events have now started to affect everyday businesses that had absolutely nothing to do with global trade, with financial markets, or, or with anything. And I think that's why we've seen the fastest bear market in history is simply because uh, this crisis has suddenly started to affect everyone. So, Jared, you just published a, a report called The Rational Investor's Guide to Coronavirus. Can you talk a little bit about what you said in that report, particularly related to the risks that we're facing now as you see them, and what are some of your biggest concerns? Well, I think there are three risks that are incredibly important right now that policymakers are trying to address. The first one is liquidity. You've seen incredible actions from the Federal Reserve. You mentioned earlier cutting interest rates to effectively zero. Uh, we expect that to continue. The Fed's trying to prevent this this seize-up in markets from becoming something that that really becomes a, a financial crisis. I think the second risk is on the corporate side. A lot of companies have, have issued a lot of bonds and a lot of debt, um, even small and medium firms. And when the economy suddenly stops uh, and you know revenues aren't flowing in, that doesn't mean that corporates don't have liabilities that they have to meet. The third, the third risk is probably the biggest one of all, which is which is the job market. We've seen uh, data from various states around the country just this week about the incredible numbers of unemployment uh, claims that are being filed as as companies have to lay off workers, and I think that's the biggest risk of all that policymakers are trying to address. Uh, and so that's why you have Congress and the White House talking about providing income to households, you know, as fast as possible, tax cuts and and other measures to try to help help workers get through this period without defaulting on their debts or, or not having the resources they need. I think you're right about that, that, you know, if this started as a health care crisis, which we can work to solve and will get solved over time, what we really need to focus on is people not losing their jobs. If we can keep employment going, it will have very positive effects on both the economy and ultimately financial markets. Policymakers are trying to hit pause on the financial system so that everyone doesn't default on obligations that aren't their fault. Um, I think on the jobs front as well, if you do get liquidity out to households in a really timely way, uh, we can keep some economic activity going and keep people you know, liquid long enough to get through this. The real concern, I think, is with companies, especially small and medium-sized firms who maybe don't transact with the financial system quite as much or don't have as deep relationships. So I think the big challenge for policymakers is to come up with policies soon to to help those smaller firms um, get over this period. Let's switch gears a little bit here and dive into steps that investors can take to actually survive this. One of the most important questions that we hear from clients during times like this is, why should I stay invested? Which seems to be a really sensible question. I mean, it can seem very rational to pull out of the market when stocks are in a free fall and your 401k is going down every day uh, and sometimes back up every day. So Jared, why isn't getting out of the market a rational response? Well, I think the biggest reason is that in a period of uncertainty, that uncertainty cuts both ways. And we know historically that some of the biggest gains and biggest rebounds some of the biggest up days come after the biggest down days. Since 1929, since the Great Depression, in the 24 months after a bear market, S&P 500 total returns have averaged 27%. And I think that's a compelling reason to look for upside in the future. The missing out argument, which I think is just as important, since the 1930s, if you missed the 10 best days of every decade, you made 91% in equities. If you, if you didn't miss those days, if you, if you held on, 
instead of 91%, your returns were more like 15,000% because of compounding and, and so on. So there's really meaningful gains to be had by not getting out when all of your intuition and emotion tells you that you should. I think that most of us, most regular investors, have as much upside uncertainty as downside here. And history, if it's any guide at all, tells us that this is a moment to hold on more than anything else. So Chris, I think that ties in really nicely with what I want to ask you about, which doesn't this all just really come back to knowing what your goals are, you know, as well as understanding your tolerance for risk? So if investors are panicking, is this a time for them to revisit or create a long-term roadmap that can help them get through the difficult times? You know, I think you said it very well. From our perspective, goals-based asset allocation starts with the objective one uh, has over the long term. And having a well-diversified portfolio based upon rational risk and return expectations. And then as you build that portfolio to meet those long-term goals, you build it on a basis of consistency over time through some of the most difficult times and then coming out of it. And we're seeing that unfold right now. So we have three main messages going into what are the most painful and stressful times like we're witnessing right now, and then coming out of it. Number one, diversification can show some of its greatest benefits in the most difficult times. Number two, having a disciplined plan with rebalancing episodes as capital market activity continues to unfold and being methodical about it over time and through time, not at a point in time. And then number three, reassess that plan consistently as capital market activity in the short term continues to unfold and help determine whether or not you're off goal or not. Those three things uh, would be our message to investors, whether it's a individual, a family, a small institution, or those just investing for the first time. So Chris, that all makes a lot of sense to me, particularly for people who are investing for the long term. But there's one group of investors that I'm particularly interested in your views on, and those are investors who are already retired or are about to retire. Should they be more concerned about the volatility, and how should they be looking at their portfolios and acting in this period? Yeah, for those about to go into retirement or already there in terms of their life cycle of investing, uh, first and foremost, uh, given the lifestyle changes that are occurring before our eyes, it's important to assess the needs. Uh, number one, your expense needs, consumer spending that you currently undertake right now in your daily life, and see whether or not your goals or objectives need to change. And then the second step would be is to examine your portfolio with an advisor. An advisor can help you work through the needed changes potentially in a portfolio that you need to make based upon any changes that you may have had to the initial step. And in some cases, this may mean you have to either increase risk a little bit on a calculated and a disciplined basis by shifting some of your fixed income, which is now at all time record low yields, or at least it was a month ago, and very close to that now. So your income production coming out of what traditionally is an income production vehicle called fixed income has uh, lessened substantially. So assess your ability to increase risk slightly in the equity side of the equation, perhaps through very high quality dividend producing investments that will uh, potentially help you increase that income over time. And that gets me to the last point, which is 
that also needs to be uh, consistently reassessed as we work through this. So it's a fluid conversation, it's a fluid plan, it needs to be disciplined, and in some cases, uh, an increase in risk to pick up extra total return that simply is not there in the asset class that once produced it. And as Jared noted, Chris, oftentimes, I guess almost always, after periods of volatility like this and even economic recessions, there are very strong returns in the equity markets. Yes, and the one additional point that I point to People try to find bottoms, and there's this famous quote that nobody rings a bell and tells you it's a bottom. And so many people try to decipher when that is, rather than understanding that investing is about over time. And bottoming processes in markets take weeks, if not months. And as you assess the components of what builds a bottom, coming out the other side, as Jared noted, is a portfolio that's designed to take advantage of what recovery we, that does unfold. And that's where some of the greatest returns can be accessed. Okay, so, so Jared, what areas of the market actually look attractive to you at this time? Well, Chris hit on a great point, which is the value of traditional fixed income investments today is in some ways the worst ever. I mean, treasury bonds give you very little return. Even investment-grade corporate bonds um, which have seen some losses lately and yields have risen a bit, um, still historically don't look uh, you know, that compelling. More importantly than all of that, I think, is the idea of a shift away from a traditional 60-40 allocation where you rely on government bonds to generate income and, and equities for your upside. We think it's time to think a little differently about that and to, to rely more on a more diverse set of assets than just those treasuries and, and large-cap equities both in order to hit income needs, but also to participate um, in growth upside. Once we get through this crisis that out on the other side, you know, the policy mix is going to look so different when we think about the next five or 10 years, et cetera, that, that uh, I think a traditional asset allocation model might serve investors really poorly. And this might be the perfect opportunity to start thinking about and having conversations about how to reposition for the future. Well, we understand that we're in the middle of a crisis now and we are coming up with a lot of policy responses to that crisis, and we ultimately will get through this. But my question is, are there going to be any long-term impacts on our habits and our lifestyle as a result of this? Do you have any, Jared or Chris, preliminary thoughts on that? I think the most important change is the change that we're already seeing within policymaking. You know, there's been a lot of dry powder left, a lot of spare capacity kind of left unused by especially Western governments over the past decade or two um, in the United States. What you're seeing now, what's very encouraging, is the realization that they can and should do more, much more. And this is bipartisan in the United States. You're finally for the first time seeing in both the United States and in Europe, to some extent in Japan, policymakers who otherwise were real opponents of this way of thinking, thinking more about how government and business can work to find uh, secure and stable ways to operate an economy in the future. And I think that's why it's such a fertile uh, and exciting opportunity for a longer-term investor to, to pay attention to how these shifts might happen. Chris, do you have any thoughts on the long-term impacts? When you think about what your question was in terms of how has potentially lifestyles changed or things like that, I look at it this way. There are new industries that are born during crises. Because 
the element of regular life tends to get upset, unsettled, and then new things are developed. The strong companies can weather the storm and come out the other side and develop new things. And the weaker companies generally have a tough time to do that. And then there are new companies. And that's where venture capital comes in. And you mentioned the supply side. Uh, clearly, the supply chain disruption is something that uh, is going to continue to unfold and will likely have to be dealt with, particularly uh, in a dual supply chain world uh, coming out of all this, one led by China, one led by the U.S., and then you look at the health sciences uh, market. Now, they've always engineered technology with biology, but that is likely to converge in three ways that we haven't seen aggressive enough before it's unfolding already, which is technology, computer science, and biology together. And those three convergences is what potentially could create a stronger, much more robust health sciences uh, world. My last question. What is the one key piece of advice you would leave our listeners with as the markets continue to be volatile over the next weeks and months ahead? And Jared, I'm going to start with you. Maybe if I could give some non-market advice, which is just to uh, take care of each other. I mean, what, what makes our economies valuable, what makes them grow, is ultimately the people and the relationships among those people that, that allow us to, to work you know, all together to produce things that are good. And uh, panics happen, you know, from time to time. There's lots of books written about market panics and financial crises. Very few people ever write about um, the the people who, who work to be calm, you know, and the way that that calmness and that discipline can actually spread in a really positive way. I think the more we have of that, even at the level of individuals, um, the better positioned we'll be, you know, to come out of this as soon as we possibly can. Chris? You know, I... Jared said it really well, and I would add to it. I think at the outset, because of the very serious health situation that's going on, it's important to step back, try to exhale, and uh, figure out what's most important in one's life. And then on a financial side, it's important to, we say this a lot, but have a disciplined plan, have it ready. And in times of stress, in times of market distress, like now, be ready to act on that plan as the capital market activity and volatility comes and goes. At most fearful times, generally has been one of the most important times to begin to reassess and invest back into the asset classes that have been harmed the most. And then as that plan unfolds, continue to reassess that with your advisor so you can make sure that you are on goal or adjust when you're not. On that note, we'll leave it there. Chris, Jared, thank you so much for your insights. I know we're all going to be very closely watching this situation over the coming weeks and months. And thank all of you for listening to this market edition of the Merrill Perspectives podcast. My co-hosts have been Chris Heisey, Chief Investment Officer for Merrill and Bank of America Private Bank, and Jared Woodard, Investment Strategist with B of A Global Research. And I'm Candace Browning, Head of B of A Global Research. To learn more about our latest insights on the markets, please visit ml.com. And you can sign up for Merrill Perspectives wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was published on March 23, 2020. Any opinions or other information correspond to the date of this recording and are subject to change. 
The views expressed are not necessarily those of Bank of America Private Bank or Merrill. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or any recommendation from any Bank of America Private Bank or Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith entity to the listener. The information is general in nature and is not intended to provide personal investment advice. The information does not take into account the specific investment objectives, financial situation, and particular needs of any specific person who may receive it. Investors should understand that statements regarding future prospects may not be realized. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Bank of America does not predict any increase or decrease in interest rates or home values. Equity securities are subject to stock market fluctuations that occur in response to economic and business developments. Bonds are subject to interest rate, inflation, and credit risks. Municipal securities can be significantly affected by political changes, as well as uncertainties in the municipal market related to taxation, legislative changes, or the rights of municipal security holders. Income from investing in municipal bonds is generally exempt from federal and state taxes for residents of the issuing state. While the interest income is tax exempt, any capital gains distributed are taxable to the investor. Income for some investors may be subject to the federal alternative minimum tax. Treasury bills are less volatile than longer-term fixed income securities and are guaranteed as to timely payment of principal and interest by the U.S. government. Investments in high-yield bonds, sometimes referred to as junk bonds, offer the potential for high current income and attractive total return but involve certain risks. Changes in economic conditions or other circumstances may adversely affect a junk bond issuer's ability to make principal and interest payments. Mortgage-backed securities are subject to credit risk and the risk that the mortgages will be prepaid so that portfolio managers may be faced with replenishing the portfolio in a possibly disadvantageous interest rate environment. Investments in foreign securities, including ADRs, involve special risks, including foreign currency risk and the possibility of substantial volatility due to adverse political, economic, or other developments. These risks are magnified for investments made in emerging markets. Investments in a certain industry or sector may pose additional risk due to lack of diversification and sector concentration. Asset allocation, diversification, and rebalancing do not ensure a profit or protect against loss in declining markets. Bank of America, Merrill, their affiliates, and advisors do not provide legal, tax, or accounting advice. Clients should consult their legal and or tax advisors before making any financial decisions. B of A Global Research is research produced by B of A Securities Inc., B of A S, and or one or more of its affiliates. B of A S is a registered broker-dealer, member SIPC, and wholly owned subsidiary of Bank of America Corporation, B of A Corp. The Chief Investment Office, which provides investment strategies, due diligence, portfolio construction guidance, and wealth management solutions for Global Wealth and Investment Management, GWIM, clients, is part of the Investment Solutions Group, ISG, of GWIM, a division of B of A Corp. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith Incorporated, also referred to as MLPFNS or Merrill, makes available certain investment products, sponsored, managed, distributed, or provided by companies that are also affiliates of B of A Corp. MLPFNS is a registered broker-dealer, registered investment advisor, member SIPC, and a wholly owned subsidiary of B of A Corp. Bank of America Private Bank is a division of Bank of America NA, member FDIC, and a wholly owned subsidiary of B of A Corp. Investment products are not FDIC insured, are not bank guaranteed, and may lose value. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Bank of America Private Bank or Merrill nor any of their affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. And any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2020 Bank of America Corporation. All rights reserved. Reserved.